This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Hello, and welcome to Discovery. I'm your host, Cal Steiger. On the show today, we have HR Untethered. Glenn Perkins sits down with Lisa Kay, founder of Peak Performance HR. They'll be discussing and answering questions from managers who are faced with challenges within the realm of human resources. We switch over to the Snapcast I Am Love with Ross Hugay and the Puzzle of Love. First, HR Untethered. Hello, I'm Glenn Perkins, and welcome back to episode two of HR Untethered, navigating HR realities with Lisa Kay. In our first episode, we discussed how significant shifts in the way companies operate have created in their wake a new set of challenges for managers, particularly in the area of human resource management. We look generally at the impacts of the game-changer COVID-19, which in addition to changing how businesses operate, also changed the expectation and experience of employees. In this episode, we move from an overview of what is happening generally in the area of human resource management to addressing very specific issues that businesses are facing. Since our last discussion, we've been receiving questions submitted to us by managers who are coming up against challenges in their attempts to create, maintain, or re-establish a highly motivated and engaged workforce. We thought it would be useful to address some of the most asked questions because clearly some of our listeners are having similar experiences and some issues are becoming more common. To answer these questions, I'm once again joined by Lisa Kay from Peak Performance HR. Lisa, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Clearly, your insight struck a chord last time out because this podcast has generated quite a response. But before we get to the questions, for our first-time listeners, could we start with you telling us about yourself and Peak Performance HR? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I founded Peak Performance HR about uh, 13 years ago now, going to be 13 years, um, when I recognized a need in the work environment where Small businesses just weren't getting uh, the expertise in HR that some of their larger counterparts, the larger organizations had internally. And so I decided to start consulting and providing HR services to small mid-sized businesses in particular to ensure that they have the support and the and the guidance in terms of HR compliance and policy and initiatives to help their business grow and succeed as well. For the smaller business, for the entrepreneurs, I guess that this is something that wouldn't be front center of mind HR. There's the setting up this business, there's the financial consideration, then there's the hiring. But once you have a team of staff, how do you handle them? Well, that's actually a really good question and a good point because you're right. I've had clients who've called me, they've been in business for 40 years and they've never had HR. Uh, so they've managed without and kudos to them. Uh, if they haven't gotten themselves in hot water, that's that's great. And if their business has gone well, then that's one, wonderful as well. But um, on, the other, on the other side of that, we do have many clients who are in startup mode, who don't even have employees yet and who are trying to be proactive, recognizing that today's workplace is a very different it's a very different place than it had been previously. So uh, it's more important probably than ever to have some HR guidance to ensure that some of the policies and compliance pieces are set up before we start bringing on staff, just to make sure that there's less liability and risk as you move forward. Especially coming out of COVID, we know people were let go. They've decided that this would be their the best time to start their own business. So definitely the information that you have is going to be very useful for them. Lisa, let's turn to the questions submitted by listeners. The 
the first is from Dr. Nadine, who manages a clinic. Uh, she asks, we have very busy times, and I find that some employees consistently book time off during this period, putting patients and their colleagues at a disadvantage. Can I institute a policy that vacations cannot be taken during these times? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And so that's where having the policies set out and expectations being clear um, on both sides for both the employer and the employee, what the vacation policy looks like, how it's structured, what is allowed and what isn't allowed so that employees are not requesting time off during the busiest periods of the year. And also ensuring that there is an approval process and that it's not just assumed that vacation requests are granted. So, you know, having a very detailed vacation policy outlining not only how much time employees are entitled to, but when they can take that time, uh, what the approval process is, how far in advance do you need to make those requests, when do they need to be approved, what happens if it's extenuating circumstances. Obviously, just because you have a policy doesn't mean you can't make an exception to that policy if the circumstances warrant it, but uh, otherwise employees are clear on what the policy is and what's acceptable and what is not. Some of the places that I've worked at in the past, one was seniority. It went by seniority. But the second one was also a time frame that you were given a period of time to submit your vacation. If you submitted it after that, then you're, you're last. You get whatever's left over. Oh, that's interesting. So, I mean, there there are all, are all sorts of different ways. I haven't heard of seniority other than in a more unionized environment, so I haven't heard that lately. But um, certainly there's a request period. Some, some companies say we want to have your vacation requests in at the beginning of the year so they can plan the year accordingly. Uh, some might say it's first come, first serve. So, you know, employees are rushing at the beginning um, of the year to submit requests, especially to over the, the Christmas holidays or the, uh, you know, the New Year's. So those are some of the, the structures that are in place. It, it really depends on the workplace and what works best for, uh, for people. Uh, these days, of course, with hybrid work environments, there's a little bit more flexibility as well. So um, vacation time is sometimes it's viewed a little bit differently because you have a little bit more flexibility in your day uh, to get certain things done when you need to. But ultimately, yes, it, it just does come down to a, a good vacation policy that suits the business. And with that, it's also the employees, knowing that at Christmas time, a lot of people will want it off certain time during the summer months, June, July, August. There will be weeks when vacation time won't be available. Yeah, I mean, and that's something that, again, with if you know coming into a position, into a role with a company that that is their vacation policy, then you're less likely to be frustrated with it at the time. I mean, you might still end up frustrated with it, but at least the expectation was clear. No one can tell you, or you can't say that no one told you, uh, is what I'm trying to say. Dr. Nadine also asks, how do I address employees who are often sick and max out their allotted sick days? Yeah, and so that that's also a very popular question in my practice um, because, first of all, some companies don't even offer sick days, and even if they do, um, it's easy to max them out. Um, but the truth is that you have to, A, have a sick policy, and secondly, um, consider each case on its own. So does this feel legitimate? Are all of the sick days that somebody's requesting on a Friday or a Monday, for example? And if they are, you might start questioning the legitimacy of those sick days. So uh, if you start noticing trends on Fridays and Mondays, you might start beginning to consider that a performance issue more than a sick day issue. Um, so you would want to address that as performance and have conversations around why are you taking off every Friday or every Monday? <laughs> um, and we've seen a pattern here and start documenting that as performance. Um, beyond that, depending on what your sick policy entails, 
you know, I know it's become slightly unpopular to ask for doctor's notes, but perhaps it's uh, after a period of time, if they're missing a certain number of days or a certain number of times uh, per month, there should be some kind of validation that the sick day is warranted. So you don't need a diagnosis, but just some kind of uh, verification from a medical doctor to indicate that it is legitimate uh, if you see that it's becoming a frequent situation. Part of your response has surprised me, and it's great that we're having this conversation because while we do, I'm learning as we go along. Great. You just mentioned some companies don't offer sick days. I, in my mind, thought it was a legality that they had to. Sick days, yes, but not paid sick days necessarily. So there, there, there's a requirement to have uh, a certain number of days that you can take off um, that that's unpaid. But if you're offering employees paid sick days, not all companies do that. That's, that's good to know. Dr. Nadine also asks, how do I manage a group of employees who are not cohesive? Yeah, I mean, that is... That is a tough question. You know, that is one of our biggest HR challenges in, in terms of managing an employee base that's not cohesive or how do you create the culture that you want, right? Um, if there's conflict in the workplace, it shouldn't always be addressed. So don't, you know, don't try to sweep it under the rug is, is my first <laughs> recommendation. you got to face it head on. Uh, so whether that means meeting with the employees separately, meeting with them together, depending on how many employees are involved, maybe you have a group meeting, a town hall even, to address some of the issues that are going on in the workplace. Uh, you may want to do this publicly. You might want to hire a consultant like, like me or my team to come in and, and facilitate focus groups to gather feedback. Um, you need to understand what the root cause of the conflict is. And hopefully, once you understand that, you could address it. Um, there is a possibility that people just don't like each other. You know, some people just don't like each other and they're just not going to get along. And that's the reality of the world. And what I usually tell people in that situation is you don't have to like the person. You just have to work with them. So you need to be able to put aside some of whatever personality um issues that annoy you or frustrate you, you have to put that aside and just get your work done and be productive. And um, and so you don't have to like them. You don't have to be their best friend, but you just need to work with them. When you walk through the door, it's being professional. Exactly. And having that cohesiveness is to me so important. And I know we use the phrase family. It's like a family here at the office and it's a little cliche, but some some companies are like that where you do have that family dynamic, but then there's that new hire and how they fit into that. Yeah. Um, and the family dynamic, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I see it less and less these days. It's probably a result of many different factors, generational differences, um, remote working, you know, there's all sorts of things that can contribute to a lack of cohesiveness. You're right, a new employee comes in and kind of uh, shakes it up a little bit, and, and so it could change the dynamic. But ultimately, the goal for the organization is the same. So focusing on the objectives of the organization, what are those uh, goals that we need to achieve together, and ensuring people are clear about how they're being measured and their performance are, is being evaluated, and how they need to work together to make that happen. But really, the cohesive question, there's so many different ways of tackling it, and there could be so many different reasons for it to begin with. It's, it's a difficult question to answer sort of in a podcast, uh, but each, each situation should be addressed on its own. Those are just a few examples of some of the ways we might tackle that. Lisa, our next question is from Rose, who runs a destination spa, and she says, does having a outside company screen applicants save time, and is there any sense that this approach works in having better long-term hires? 
So full disclosure, of course, my firm, my firm offers this service, so I, do, I suppose I do have a vested interest in the way I respond to it, uh, but I will try to be objective here. Certainly having uh, an outside firm can be helpful. Uh, first of all, it takes the initial screening off of your plate, um, leaving you to do what you need, what you need to do for your own business. Um, as you probably know if you've ever done any hiring, once you've posted a position, the volume of resumes that comes in can be overwhelming sometimes and very time-consuming. So having an outside firm who understands what the criteria is, what you're looking for, and being able to shortlist top candidates to present to you for your consideration can be a huge benefit. I think it's important, though, in looking and hiring an outside firm to make sure that they're a good fit for you as well. Uh, there are a lot of different types of employment agencies out there. There are a lot of different types of recruiters out there. Uh, some are better than others, and some will be the right fit for certain organizations better than others. I just want employers to, to think about the fact that you want whoever you're working with to have an appreciation not only of what the criteria of the job is, but also what the culture of the company is. Who's going to be a good fit? Uh, not just a matter of what's written on their resume, because that is only a portion of what makes a candidate successful in a role, right? So having the hard skills to do the job is only a small part of it. Being able to integrate well and um, fit into the team is, is another huge component. So working with somebody externally who understands your business, understands your culture, is really important. And we know that with the resume, what you get isn't always what is written down on the resume. And that's true, too. So sometimes uh, employers, just because they're pressed for time, they may not go through the process as thoroughly. They may not ask the right questions. They may not follow through with, uh, with the proper screening and assessments and references where if you engage with an outside firm, they may have access to those things. They may have access to testing for you know, computer skills or they may have access to testing for soft skills that you otherwise wouldn't benefit from. There's also new technologies out there that allow employers to assess fit. And um, those are some great tools that, again, unless you're familiar with them, you may not think to use them, but ultimately they can improve the quality of the hire that you bring in. Rose also wants to know, how do I know when bringing in an outside firm is what I need to do? Well, again, so that is a personal decision. Um, you know, if you have a volume of recruitment that warrants having a full-time or even a part-time employee who you can hire uh, to take on that role for you, that, that might make sense. But if your recruitment is less frequent um, or... A lot of the roles that you're hiring for, for example, are the same. If you're working, if you have a call center and you need to hire 10 customer service agents, it might make sense from a from a time cost perspective just to bring on an external um, agency to assist you with that type of recruitment because of just the the administration involved in scheduling interviews and conducting interviews and who's working out and who's not working out and who's, you know, um, going through the process. So, so at the end of the day. It, you know, you just decide whether the, the volume of recruitment, how much you're hiring, and, and what type of roles you're hiring for as well um, will help you determine whether it makes sense. Again, if, if there are easier roles to fill, administrative roles, accounting, some of the typical roles that you might see, those are a little easier than some of the more complex positions, for example, in an engineering firm where it's very specific skill set. You have to go to market, um, and it's sort of a very... A specific search. And, and in that case, again, you might want somebody external who's going to devote their time to that. On today's episode of HR Untethered, Lisa Kay from Peak Performance HR is answering your questions. Lisa, the next question is from Roger. He operates a security firm and he would like to know 
He says that he's had to let an employee go because of client complaints, which upon investigation were found to be valid. They agreed to a settlement but never actually signed off and now have reached out to the Labour Board. I believe we will be successful in this process, but in the meantime, they have been contacting current employees to air their grievances. We've asked that they stop through our lawyer, but it continues. How do I address this with current employees? Yeah, and that's a, that's a tough one um, because if they're not adhering to any legal obligations contractually that you probably had included, uh, hopefully you had included in your termination and or even within your employment agreement initially, um, it's hard to, to control what other people choose to do. So if they're reaching out to your employees and, and making comments and, um, you know, saying things that may or may not be true, ultimately... You don't want that happening, but it is difficult to stop it. Uh, so, so really the best thing to do is to address it directly with employees, making the request of your employees to keep in mind, A, any obligations they may have um, through their employment agreement as well. But really on a personal note, just giving them perhaps a little bit of background, obviously not sharing the confidential aspects of what's going on or what had transpired with the investigation, why that person is no longer with you, uh, is not important. Really, it's... We don't want you communicating with this person. Uh, if they contact you, please do not engage. Uh, and having that conversation directly with employees. Um, that's probably the most effective way and also gives those employees perhaps an opportunity to ask questions, some of which you might be able to answer for them, giving them some perspective on what, where you're at in the process. And ultimately, hopefully, the legal proceedings will, will take care of the rest. And depending on how long the employees have worked together, they may already know that this has been happening because if there have been several complaints, as Roger has indicated in his, his, his statement, uh, this isn't something that's new that's just popped up overnight. Yeah, I mean, you do find that, you do find that often, that employees are often aware of what's happening um, beneath the surface. And so if, if there were complaints, they're probably aware of some of these things. There was talk in, in the shop before this happened, right? Um, so they, they can probably appreciate as the employer why you don't want them spreading rumors. Uh, you don't want them listening to this person, um, regardless of what they're saying. You know, it's, it's best to cut contact. I mean, obviously, if they're friends outside of the workplace, you, you won't have the option. There's certain things that you can't control. But whatever you can do internally just to, to educate people, just to let them know this is what's happening, again, without sharing all the details, but just enough on a need-to-know basis. We would appreciate if you just do not engage in these conversations. And, and most people, I think, that do respect that. It comes down to communications. Exactly. Lisa, the final question for today is from Jennifer. She's the CEO of an audio production company that works entirely remotely. She says, I have employees who are part of the gig economy. They come to us when I have work that matches their skill set. And when they are not with us, they work for many other companies. This is not one or two within my workforce, but rather the majority. The work we do is customized and often requires knowledge of an industry, so some employees are with us for only a few weeks of the year while others are there more often. It depends on what we sell. How do I keep them engaged? What a great question, and uh, it's one that's close to my heart because my business is structured in a similar way where everybody is remote as well. So, you know, I, I can appreciate how difficult it is to keep people engaged and, and back to the the discussion about cohesiveness. How do you build a team when people don't get to pass each other in, in the office, who don't get to stand at the water cooler and chit chat? Um, it, it is difficult. And uh, the best advice I can provide is 
first of all, keeping everybody in the loop and communicating as often as possible about everything that has to do with the business. Successes, you know, um, celebrating successes, chatting about things that didn't go according to plan, just keeping people in the loop as to what work, what's working, what isn't working within the business. Um, regular communications helps people feel a part of it. So even if those um, contractors or, you know, the gig workers are not there on a constant basis, they are still receiving messages, emails, texts, just keeping them up to, up to speed in terms of what's happening uh, within the business, new projects, what's completed, etc. That's one of the things I would recommend. And of course, any opportunity to socialize. Uh, I suppose it's a bit stereotypical of, of HR to, to recommend this, but really having an opportunity to meet outside of work and to socialize outside of work also helps to build relationships, to build trust, familiarity, and makes people want to get together um, and to help one another. So as time goes on, if, you know, if some people aren't there for a particular project but need to be brought in later on, once they come back, they instantly feel a part of the team because they already know the other folks. They've already had an opportunity to chat, get to know each other and uh, and are more likely to pick up and be engaged at that point. Some places that I've worked at have introduced team building exercises, which I'm I'm all for the team, but I'm not for the exercises. But I must admit that once I'm there, once I'm engaged with, with my colleagues and some who I've met for the first time, I do find the conversation easier, especially when we're tackling issues at the office. Yeah, and listen, those team building exercises to some are a lot of fun, to other people outside of their comfort zone. Um, but really, it doesn't have to be a formal team building exercise even. Really just getting together for for an evening you know, of appetizers and, and drinks or whatever. It's it just an opportunity to socialize. Team building, wine and appetizers, that I'm, I'm on board for that. Thank you, Lisa, again for sharing your experiences and understanding of managing human resources. That's a wrap for this edition, and I thank you for listening. If you missed any part of this podcast or want to hear it again, you can access this and all episodes of HR Untethered, Navigating HR Realities with Lisa Kay, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google, and many others. And if you would like to reach out to Lisa Kay to learn more about how Peak Performance HR can help your business, Lisa, what's the best way for people to contact you? They can contact me through our website at www.peakperformancehr.ca. It's P-E-A-K, performancehr.ca. There you'll find a contact form. You can reach out through that contact form or by phone or email, and uh, I'd be happy to chat. I'm Glenn Perkins, and this is HR Untethered. Up next, I am love. The Puzzle of Love. We invite you to open your hearts and minds as we embrace the power of love, compassion, and self-discovery. Prepare to be inspired, uplifted, and guided towards a higher understanding of ourselves and the world we inhabit. Welcome to I Am Love. It's about owning the idea of love, believing in the idea of love, and really, really harnessing that with everything you do. It's so often that we want to understand our partner, but sometimes it's really just about letting it be. 
observing, enjoying, staying in that present moment. And in that presence, in that moment, you're able to discover so much beauty that you would have missed with the focus of looking for certain ideas and traits, like the puzzle piece, one that fits in. That's love coach Paula Howe on how Emily discovered that true love is a lifelong journey of self-discovery, growth, and connection. The Puzzle of Love In a quaint town nestled between rolling hills, there lived a wise old puzzle maker named Samuel. Samuel was known for his intricate and captivating puzzles that challenged the mind and stirred the imagination. One day, a young traveler named Emily arrived in the town, seeking wisdom and guidance on matters of the heart. She'd been on a quest to find true love, but felt lost and disheartened by her failed attempts. Word of Emily's arrival reached Samuel, who saw an opportunity to offer her a unique perspective on love. He invited Emily to his humble workshop and presented her with a special puzzle called the Puzzle of Love. The puzzle consisted of countless interlocking pieces, each representing a different aspect of love. Samuel explained that finding true love was like solving a complex puzzle. It required patience, understanding, and a willingness to explore every intricate connection. Emily eagerly accepted the challenge and began fitting the puzzle pieces together. As she worked, Samuel shared his wisdom about love. He explained that love was not a finished picture waiting to be discovered, but rather a journey of discovery itself. Piece by piece, Emily discovered the joys and challenges of love. Some pieces represented trust, others vulnerability, while some embodied compromise and forgiveness. Each connection she made brought her closer to unraveling the puzzle's secrets. As Emily navigated through the puzzle, she realized that the most important piece was self-love. It was the foundation upon which all other pieces of love fell into place. Samuel explained that true love couldn't flourish without a deep appreciation and acceptance of oneself. Inspired by this realization, Emily began to focus on her own self-growth and self-care. She nurtured her passions, embraced her quirks, and learned to love herself unconditionally. With each piece she connected, the puzzle of love became clearer, and her understanding of love deepened. Weeks turned into months as Emily devoted herself to the puzzle. Eventually, she completed the final piece, unveiling a breathtaking image that represented love in all of its complexity and beauty. With the puzzle solved, Emily felt a profound sense of fulfillment. She thanked Samuel for his guidance and wisdom, realizing that true love wasn't confined to finding a partner, but was a lifelong journey of self-discovery, growth, and connection. Emily left the workshop with a newfound perspective on love. She understood that the puzzle of love was ever-evolving and that the joy lay in embracing the process rather than solely focusing on the end result. From that day forward, Emily approached relationships with an open heart and mind. She recognized that love wasn't about finding someone to complete her, but rather about two individuals coming together, each with their own unique puzzle pieces, to create a beautiful and harmonious connection. And so, Emily ventured into the world, carrying the wisdom of the puzzle of love with her. She embraced the journey, knowing that love would always be a beautiful and intricate puzzle, waiting to be explored and cherished. I can't help but think the last time that I opened a box to uh, start a puzzle and I debated, do I look at the picture? Do I not look at the picture? Do I create the puzzle? How will it come about? And I think that really defines what a relationship is. We could have an ideal picture, we could see it on the outside, and we can have all these ideas of what we think that relationship is going to be. 
And we know that there are different pieces, different angles, different frustrations in designing that. But ultimately, if we persevere, we'll end up with a completed puzzle. And that completed puzzle will have the memory of all that it took to complete, including the time. And for some, we might not even complete that puzzle. And for others, it may take decades. And for some, it may take days. So no matter where you are on your journey in your puzzle of relationship discovery, take a moment to take a deep breath and remember that at the end, there is something to receive at the end, no matter what the image looks like. That's love coach Paula Howell. In the next episode, hear how Maya discovered her own unique voice and the power it held to create a positive impact on others. We hope you enjoyed I Am Love, our gift to you from the I Am Love Foundation. Feel more love and less stress every day with the free I Am Love meditations at IamLoveFoundation.com and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Ross Huguet, the founder of the I Am Love Foundation. Please visit us at www.IamLoveFoundation.com. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Discovery, check out 1059theregion.com to hear this or any of our previous episodes. Under the podcast tab, click on Discovery. This was the radio show for podcasters. Until next week, I'm Cal Steiger. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 1059 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.